You're listening to the Legion of Reason. Welcome to the Legion of Reason, podcasting a critical eye on a sometimes less than critical world. In this, the 144th installment of our humble audio periodical, we bring you two interviews. In the first, Depres Chris and yours truly the supreme irreverent Dr. Randy Tyson talk to screenwriter and author Chris Matheson about his new book taking a quirky and entertaining look at what it would be like to be God. In the second, the incomparable Nate Phelps and I talk with Christian apologist-turned-atheist John Loftus about his upcoming book giving advice to budding Christian apologists on how to go about defending their faith. Enjoy! We have with us today Chris Matheson, director and screenwriter best known for co-penning Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure and Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. And he's recently published The Story of God, a biblical comedy about love and hate. He joins us over Skype from Portland, Oregon. I believe you're in Portland, right? I am. Yes, that's what, yeah. Uh, a mutual friend of ours uh, got us uh, together. Uh, that would be uh, Peter Bogosian, and which we're going to have on again later this year because we want to talk to him about uh, Islamic extremism, how we could, uh, how we can actually uh, fight that off. Because we have had a number of people from Calgary go over to fight with ISIS. Right. But anyway, uh, yeah, I. I heard you on. It was kind of an, uh, a nice uh, coincidence because I, I listened to your interview with Seth Andrews. Yeah. And that got me to uh, actually buy the book, and I started reading it. And I, I find it's a, a very almost uh, Douglas Adam esque hmm. kind of kind of uh, point of view of God. And it, the image of the whale came to my mind. Do you remember the whale from from? Uh, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where the wheel is falling, and he's basically inventing names for for things like the ground, which he's about to have a very personal and up close experience with. <laughs> and so everything's from the point. Of, how do you get inside the head of the whale, for instance, or, or Ted, or God, in that way? <laughs> Good question. Um... You have to find a connection of some sort, I think. You have to, I mean, I suppose at the end of the day, you're, you're just drawing on something within yourself. You're either drawing on something within yourself or you're drawing on something that's very, very close at hand, ultimately. Like, though, if it's not you, it's gotta be those you know very, very well whose voices you've kind of internalized, like parents, let's say. Um, but I think ultimately it, it it must come from within, not consciously, but if it if it flows at all, if it works at all, I think that's probably what's happening. I was just thinking about it this morning uh, about getting inside somebody else's head. I mean, it's very similar to what uh, I guess FBI profilers do when they're going after serial killers. And I, I thought, hey, you know, God is the ultimate in genocidal maniacs. Uh, <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah, the FBI really should look into this guy. <laughs> yeah, he's a, it's it's a great story. Uh, just just the the quirkiness. I've never thought about anything from the point of view of God. We've always described what God does from a human point of view, but never from his point of view. Yeah. Like when he speaks, who's he talking to? Yeah. Right, and that, that's one of the things that I found uh, very entertaining in the book. And it's like, gee, it, it got me to think, it got me to think uh, from a different point of view. Yeah, they they kind of uh, they wrap him in this cloak of of mystery, where he's sort of there's an opacity to him, and ultimately, when his behavior doesn't really make sense, and and a lot of times it doesn't make sense, it's well, he works in mysterious ways, but. He doesn't, in fact. He's he's pretty human-scaled. He, he's pretty much a guy with human needs and human motivations and human fears and human hurts and insecurities and, and lusts. And so this idea that he can't be understood uh, as a kind of a, a, a big man in the sky... I don't think that's right. I think he. I think he can be. I think that's. I think that's how he's presented to us in their book. That's what he is. So, um, and he's a really interesting character, and he's kind of been untouched. 
in that sense for a pretty long time because you're just not supposed to do that. You know, you're not supposed to, to look at him that way. But why not? Well, a lot of people claim to understand the mind of God, yet then they come up, as you say, with the whole God works in mysterious ways as kind of an excuse to, yeah, I don't. I wish you wouldn't think that way. Yeah, when they're confronted with something they don't like, when they're confronted with um, God's commands to murder children or God's uh, commands to murder your own children if they misbehave, then they'll kind of wave their hands around and talk about his his um, kind of um, mysteriousness. So they always have that as a fallback. But I don't think it's legitimate. I think he's there's a, a very clear portrait of the character if you look at the book carefully. Yeah, uh, certainly. Uh, if you look at it from our point of view, it's it's. God being invented by man, of course he would have these attributes, these uh, these ways of thinking that are, that we're very familiar with. Yeah, of course. I mean, right. From our standpoint, he's a reflection of us, right? He looks like we do, and he has the same inner life that that we do. If you just, what I wanted to try to do in the book was go along with their story. You're right. You're totally right. He does exist. It's all true. Your whole story is true. He made us in his image, not vice versa. So, okay, accepting that, who is this guy? What's wrong with this guy? What is what is the deal with this guy, if that's true? Hmm. And so what, what did you find uh, when you looked into the mind of God? What, what, <laughs> what, was, what was the most, uh, I mean, other than empty space? Uh, what was the most interesting aspects of God's mind that you, you found? Well, I think there's there are several levels uh, that are all quite interesting. Um, there, there is a tremendous amount of of uh, anger, obviously. He's he's very destructive and he's very angry, and and that in itself is is kind of funny because he he made all this. This is, this is all his design. He created the whole thing. And yet he's always mad. He's always upset as if somehow he, he's like, well, why didn't you just make it the way you liked then? You, you supposedly had total power. Um, he's underneath the anger. And I think we understand this. We all understand this on a human, just within our own minds, our own psychology, our own emotional lives. He's hurt. He's really, really hurt, this Damn. character. <laughs> yeah, he's really um, he's really hurt that he's not loved more. He could, pr- presumably, he could have created a reality where everybody loved him, but he didn't. He 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 didn't, and very few people love him, and and they either ignore him or or they like other gods better, or that they're just not interested, and that that hurts him terribly. And he's bottomlessly insecure. And I would say at the end of the day, he is mentally ill, and I would say he is uh, consumed with a kind of a pathological self-hatred. Um, I think when you, I think the Garden of Eden kind of gives it away. I think when you have a perfect plan, you are the architect and the implementer of a perfect plan. And at the very beginning of implementing your perfect plan, you introduce your worst enemy to un- to undermine it. What does that say about you? I, I think it's it's fascinating and it's very strange and there's something kind of disturbed about it. Well, um, he certainly lashes out. I mean, he, he acts out. I guess is the proper term. He's a very childish character, isn't he? Yeah, extremely. <laughs> um, and 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 at certain points, I even felt I, I wanted to feel a degree of let's say uh, empathy or compassion for the character because I didn't want to just be. I didn't want to write a snarky book. I don't like snark. I hate snark. I think snark's awful. I think it's like a comedic virus. I don't like it. And if the book's snark, well then, in my book, I've. I've, if in my own opinion, I've failed. I didn't want it to be snarky. I wanted it to be um, kind of deeper than that. Snark is just sort of taking pot shots, in my view. And I wanted to try to make a connection with what was really happening with this character. And I thought, and I, and at a certain point, I, it kind of struck me like, what a horrible role this would be. You have no mother. 
You have no father. You have no siblings. You have no friends. You have no wife. You have you, you have no daughter. Your son you only meet after you've basically tortured and, and, and murdered him. You have nothing. You have an enemy. You have an, one enemy, and that's it. That's your and a bunch of sycophants, and that's it. That's your reality. You'll never be touched. You'll never laugh because you can't, because you can't be surprised, because you know everything. You'll never, there's, there's nothing. It's, it's this cold, horrible kind of prison. And that kind of struck me. And so he's, yeah, he's laughable. I mean, I want the book to be funny. The book's meant to be funny. He's horrible, you know? He's a horrible, horrible character. But I think he's really mentally ill and, and disturbed at the center of it all. Yeah, as you've said, like a very, very wounded child. Imagine a child just stuck out in the desert with, with nothing. And, and the child will, will live. The child can't die. But the child has nothing. The child doesn't know why it's there. The child has no, no, no mother there to hold it and comfort it. Nobody to hold it and comfort it. Nothing, nothing, nothing forever. And what would you get? You'd get a very angry, spiteful, hateful child, I think. Yeah, and then you give the child an AK-47 and weapons of mass destruction, and that's basically God. (laughs) That's God. Well, yeah, then watch out. Watch out, everybody. Yeah. It's not going to be good. (laughs) Yeah, that's more or less it. Yeah, it's a... From it... That's the thing. The book itself gave me a different point of view that what would it be like from a first-person perspective to be alone, to be completely... I mean, and, and the the oddities like speaking well why would god actually have to speak because there's no purpose to speaking yeah it's great it's really funny like <laughs> who's he talking to let there be light who are you talking to are you talking to yourself like all right i'm gonna tell myself let there be light okay now there can be light like why would that be necessary or are you telling other people or other beings in which case I guess he wasn't alone. I guess it's like there were little minions, you know, 20 feet away in the darkness waiting for him to give an order. And then they're like, yes, sir, turn the lights on. I mean, either either version is is very peculiar. Yeah. Or, you know, what's the kind of classic question? Who created the creator who's granting these wishes to him? Right. Uh, there's always that one underlying everything and the christians they of course they don't like that question no no monotheist likes that question because they have no answer to it you know they just they insist well no there's a stopping point there is a stopping point and this is it and nothing no questions no more questions that's all that's the stopping point but why i mean who says why is that the stopping point according to who why should it be like everything i mean they love to go off on Everything has a cause. The universe, every, the, the, everything has a cause, and therefore God is the cause. But everything has a cause I- except God. So they're fine with that somehow. The, the, that, that, seemed, that makes perfect sense to them. It doesn't make sense to, to me. I don't think it makes sense to most of us on our side. No, absolutely not. Uh, it's Part of the problem is they've made not questioning a virtue. I mean, oh, they've, they've, they've couched it in this... Oh, isn't it? Isn't that person's faith wonderful? You know, oh, yeah. you're so right. That, in fact, I think that is the biggest problem they've got. They have taken something which is a good, which is a a really good thing in, in the human mind and the human spirit, and that is doubt, doubt and skepticism. We ask questions, we wonder about things, we push through obvious answers. We just don't accept. What's handed to us? We're not made that way. Our minds are are made to inquire and poke at things and pull at things and look for deeper answers and look for deeper pa- patterns. That's what we're made for. And they take that beautiful thing, doubt, and they make that bad. Doubt is bad. Doubt is a bad thing. Doubt might literally be a satanic thing. And and uh Man, they are screwing themselves over by doing that because that's one of the most powerful tools we have. And you're right. On the other side, they take faith and and they elevate that into the supreme virtue, faith. But, you know, maybe it is, maybe it's not. Faith in what? What kind of faith? Um, they're, they're, I think they have it. I think they have it all wrong. 
And uh, sometimes I, I, you know, they like they also like to go to Pascal's Wager and, and use yeah. that one. Yeah. And they, they, I think they're completely wrong about that one too. It's like, okay, there's a god, and um, if you don't believe, you lose everything, and if you do believe, you gain, um, you gain everything. Yeah, and if there the isn't. Yeah, I think it's. I think and they've got it all yeah. wrong. If you believe in something that's not there, you're giving away everything in this life. The one the you promise get. Promise of some. Yeah, the one life you get for 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 the for the promise of some imaginary life. Um, they're they've they've got that whole thing upside down. Of course you of course you lose a lot in that wager. You you lose something real, not some imaginary thing. Yeah, Pascal should have stuck to math. <laughs> He's great when he's just talking about how sick, you know, human beings. Are. I mean, the first part of his book is great, but then when he's like, God, 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 God's the answer, you know, it's like, uh, then, then, then he loses me. But he's, he's, he's fun up to that point. Yeah, good at math, too. Uh, uh, is this, could we step back? I should have probably asked these questions before we started talking about the book, but, uh, uh, it, what, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure is one of my favorite movies from the 80s. Uh, I love quirky movies. Uh, you know, Bill and Ted, of course, being the sort of like the extreme of that quirkiness. Uh, uh, things like uh, Revenge of the Nerds. I mean, I you know I've gone through the university system, but my university experience was nothing like those <laughs> those two. Uh, we don't even have uh, fraternities uh, fraternities up here actually. Uh, I think that's I, why. I think that's I think why. we do. Well, yeah, no, not like they do down there. Oh, yeah. yeah. Like, uh, you can go through university here and never see a frat boy. So, Congratulations. It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I kind of, uh, the brotherhood can be, it has good and bad aspects to it. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it does breed in-group, out-group dynamics that are not very good, but there there is a sense of com- a belonging and, and community, just like religion provides. Uh, it's movies like that. Uh, what I'm going to ask the same question for the book as I am for Bill and Ted's uh, Excellent Adventure. What was the the motivating factor for writing uh, the screenplay for this this movie? Well, um, I'll see if it's a it's a it's not a long story, but it's a there's a there's a history to how Bill and Ted was written, and I'll try and sum it up quickly. Um, Ed Solomon and I, who we we wrote it together, we we just got to be friends in college, and we hit it off, and we hung out a lot, and we just laughed together, and we just really enjoyed each other's company, and I thought he was funny and he thought I was funny and we just laughed a lot and and with a couple other friends we formed a an improv group not not to perform we never performed in front of an audience we just wanted to get together and sort of play with ideas and play with stuff we thought was funny and one night the i guess the suggestion was to two teenage boys talking about world affairs and it was it was me and Ed, and I basically said how's it going Bill and he said how's it going Ted and and we just started talk we just broke into these characters and we found them funny very quickly and got to felt like we understood them really quickly and in fact went out afterwards for coffee and stayed in character and just talked as bill and ted for for quite a long time and then for the following year uh would just write letters back and forth as bill and ted or get on the phone as bill and ted just kind of fill them out, flesh them out, so that we really knew them, so that they were very alive to us. They were like very specific human beings, and we didn't have a, a plan for for doing anything with them exactly. Um, we just liked them. They were fun. And at a certain point, because we were young, ambitious guys, I guess we thought, well, what, what, what are we going to do with these guys? I mean, we're not going to play them. We're not going to, like, go out and do uh, skits with, with uh, him, you know, playing Bill and Ted. Why don't we write them down? Why don't we write them in a movie? And at that point, we, we came up with the idea of, of time travel as a way to sort of send them on a crazy adventure. Just like that? <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah. yeah, so that's that's more or less the, the gestation of Bill and Ted. Yeah, I... Uh I remember going to see this movie um, when I first saw it. It was at at our university. We, at, at the time, we had a theater on campus. Uh, mm-hmm. It has since been uh, it's now defunct, unfortunately. But you know, I, there were lots of 
uh, great films that I saw there. Uh, the Cotton Club is another one that I that I distinctly remember. And I just it was such a surprise to me. To the, I, I had no expectations. I had no idea even what the movie was about before I walked in, and I came out so pleasantly surprised. Uh, it, it was just a, a a great story and interesting characters that uh, you you have to be really good. It's it's like um, people singing bad. You have to be really good at singing to sing badly. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of a similar thing where you, you have to be really smart to to get to, into uh, clueless characters that, uh, and put them into situations that are. To- In this case, it's kind of surreal. I mean, time travel is re- rather surreal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then see what 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 happens out of that mixture. What comes out of that? Um, yeah, you know, they were, they were really, really fun characters to play with. I, I, I would say, I, I would imagine almost any comedy writer would say the same thing. It's like every now and then you, it, it, it it's like you're fishing and every now and then you get it, you get one. You, most of the time you don't, it's hard. It's not easy to come up with a character who, who, who you think is funny and, and who you understand. But when you do, you, you, you know, you, it's very pleasurable and exciting and it's, almost like things start to write themselves they don't nothing ever actually writes itself but it goes a lot faster because you're a lot of the work's done it, you can to some degree get out of the way and just let them let them roll you know they they exist in a way you know them and you can just sort of let it flow it's 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 fun it's a fun kind of writing and Bill and Ted were very much like that they always have been the, the, are they still with you they are. We're working very hard to get number three oh, really? made, and we're uh, making some headway on that. Oh, that's uh, that's interesting. I actually hadn't even thought there might be a number three. Uh, yeah. So, uh, are we bringing back the original actors? Oh. Are we? Oh yeah, it wouldn't be. I mean, we it wouldn't be worth doing without Alex and Keanu playing those parts. Yeah. <laughs> so have you talked to them yet? Oh yeah, we've been basically working on this for years now, trying to get this together. I mean, the, the script exists. We're we're just you know trying to sort of get our ducks in a row here in terms of financing. Wow, I hadn't realized that. Uh, yeah, that that would actually be really cool. You know, in the sequel, of course, you had to do something different. So you brought in death. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there was a lot of there was a lot of interest in sort of replaying part one and sending them into different parts of history, and Ed and I just didn't really want to do that. We wanted to try something different. So yeah, we Absolutely. we thought we thought killing them and sending them to heaven and hell was <laughs> would would be really fun, and it was in fact. Yeah, uh, uh, definitely. Uh, uh, it's one of those movies where the, the sequel is as good as the original, and it's that, that that's hard to do. It, the I think the original probably is more coherent. It, it it makes more sense. It's a it's a probably a better told story. It's simpler. It's more straightforward. The second one's kind of crazy and all over the place, but it does have have I think some some really really funny things. And uh, Alex and Keanu had a lot of fun playing the evil robot versions of themselves. Oh yeah, they so got those, to do something. So different. those are yeah. pretty fun to watch. I think. <laughs> Yeah, that was those two were fantastic films. And but now getting back to the book, uh, now you've you've had uh, success as, as a screenwriter. You now you want to uh, try your hand at penning a, a, a tome. Uh, what brought you to to that point? Um, it's kind of an evolution. As, as I said, it's it's writing. Um, characters and he seemed like a really good character to me and it didn't feel like a movie to me it felt more like a book uh, so I wrote it that way um, but it's more or less the same it's it's definitely on a, a continuum I guess it's um, try to find a good character a character that i can connect with a character that makes sense to me a character that i hear and that i find funny and write it in whatever medium seems to make the most sense i mean i guess if uh, if if i had an idea and i thought a play was the best version of it i'd i'd probably try and write it that way 
and it's a actually a play in a numerous acts, but yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's a very <laughs> lengthy play. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> go over eight, go over like eight hours or and, something, and many millennia. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's and of course I'm going all over the place here because I just thought of something else. Uh, whose idea was it to bring George Carlin in on the Bill and Ted? Uh, that w- that would be the producers. That was oh, a really? pretty yeah. That would be a pretty late thing. Um, we Ed and I, when we wrote it, had the idea that like some some rock star would play um, Rufus, whether it was Eddie Van Halen or David Lee Roth, or or at certain moments we got excited about the idea of like Ringo playing Rufus, and and then at the pretty late, I would say not that long before production, the last few weeks, um, they got Carlin. And of course, it was serendipitous, right? Carlin's great in that part. And he now it's hard to imagine anybody else playing Rufus. But it, it actually happened fairly late. Yeah, Ringo might be fairly similar to... Yeah, Ringo, where Ringo, Ringo would have been funny. Yeah. You know? uh, that would have been good. They look similar. In a little. A little bit. Well, the beard yeah. and all. <laughs> yeah. And so so how has this book been received? And uh, I, I know it's been, seems to have been uh, received very well in the atheist community. Have you had any uh, feedback from that? Uh, I think people in, in the atheist community uh, enjoy it. I think they find it funny. I think it's a way of getting at some of the same ideas that Dawkins and Harris and Coyne and uh, Peter Bogosian get at, but in a more of a narrative, comedic sort of way. So um, I think it's gone pretty well uh, in that group. And in terms of how Christians have responded, I I, I haven't heard a thing. I haven't gotten any (laughs) scathing. I don't even know whether they know about it yet. I don't think they'd like it. Although I fantasize about certain Christians secretly reading it, almost like it's, um, you know, forbidden. Um, and like at night under the blankets, like reading it and, and kind of laughing and going, God, I've, yeah, intellectual porn, right? I've thought that. <laughs> I've, I've wondered that very thing. I just never felt like I could, I could actually ask that question. Why did he talk? Who is he talking to? Why is he sitting there in the darkness by himself forever? What, why does he say we? What, what is happening? Why, why did he send the serpent into the garden? Why doesn't he give Eve a name? Like all of these things that you would, if you read carefully at all, you'd just, they, there's so many, the whole book's nothing but red flags, just like from beginning to end, pretty much. Yeah, essentially, what you're saying is the, the book almost wrote itself. I, I would say so. No book actually <laughs> writes itself. True. Yeah. To, but you had the framework and, and all the. I had uh, an excellent comedic structure. Yes. <laughs> yes. Already there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's a. Uh, well, it's a fantastic book. I, I loved it. Uh, I'm still reading it, by the way. Oh, uh, but okay. it's uh, I, it, it's between that uh, when I go to bed at night, it's it's uh, reruns of Archer and then your book, <laughs> which <laughs> sure it's just not altogether different. I could see that. Uh, just the yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, take that as you will. Um, Chris, anything from you? Yeah, I was wondering if there's any plans to take it to the stage or the big screen, this book. Uh, I have nothing yet. I think that would be that would be great. But uh, I, I mean, I have an idea of who would be good if it ever happened. But um, that's that's a ways off. I think uh, if I ever got so lucky as to get it um, in into a movie, I think. And and I could be super lucky, and I could just pick who would play it. Daniel Day Lewis says, "God, man, Daniel Day Lewis, that guy would kill." Because God is a little bit like Daniel Plainview, and there will be blood. Or if you want to just do a comedic version, Will Ferrell. Will Ferrell as kind of bonehead God, who really hasn't he's kind of has an IQ of ninety eight and just gets mad a lot because he makes stupid decisions and is always getting um, mad at himself for it. And uh, 
could make a good sitcom almost. That kind of would. And <laughs> Sasha, Sasha Cohen as Satan would, would kill. Oh gosh. Oh god. That would he, be. He'd be pretty great. <laughs> he'd be pretty great. Well, uh, yeah, it's been great having you on. And you can get the book on Amazon.com or Amazon.ca or find bookstores everywhere, I guess. So yeah. Thank you very much for being on the Legion of Reason podcast. It's been, uh, it's been uh, awesome having you on. That's yeah, my pleasure. We also have with us John Loftus, a master's graduate in theology from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and once, or or is it still John, uh, an ordained minister in the Church of Christ? Are you? Uh, no, I'm not ordained with the Church of Christ anymore, but I am ordained with the um, Church, the Atheist Church, or something like that. I think that's what it's called, or the and also the Universal Church of Love. Oh, cool. <laughs> uh, uh, and you also taught pol- apologetics and philosophy at various universities, and you hit the eject button on religion and became a staunch voice for reason. In the aftermath of a crisis of faith, he has written a number of books, beginning in 2008 with Why I Became an Atheist, A Former Preacher Rejects Christianity. And this was followed by Why I Became an Atheist, Personal Reflections and Additional Arguments, The Outsider Test for Faith, an anthology titled The Christian Delusion, Why Faith Fails, The End of Christianity, and following a debate tour with Christian apologist Randall Rouser. And quite honestly, John, I do not know how you uh, didn't strangle Randall after attending one of those debates. Co-authored with Randall uh, a book called God or Godless based on this debate. And in November that that month, we'll see you. Uh, publishing the sixth book, I believe, uh, How to Defend the Christian Faith, Advice from an Atheist. He also has a blog called Debunking Christianity, and welcome to the Legion of Reason, John. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate uh, you having me on. Yeah, so uh, I, th- I think we we'll, should go a little bit to the beginning. I mean, you did hit the eject button on, on religion. Uh, tell us about that. Well, I... Uh... I have a tendency to think that the delusion is so strong with most people that it takes a crisis for for them to do what they should have been doing all along, and that is uh, to critically examine their religion. And um, you know, I share that in my book, Why I Became an Atheist. I, I had a crisis of faith, and the the difference between, say, me and some others might be the fact that I uh, I had read the arguments of the liberals and uh, some of the writings of the atheists. And so during my crisis of faith, I was able to, um, you know, rethink, you know, those arguments, the arguments of the liberals and the atheists. And because I had that uh, knowledge already inside my head, the crisis allowed me to um, uh, process that information. And, And in the process, I did gradually and slowly turn from, a conservative to a moderate to a liberal to a deist to an agnostic and then to an atheist and that process took took about about 12 years <laughs> wow uh, what what was your crisis of faith if you don't mind me asking well if you uh, if you uh, never have heard of uh, a preacher having an affair then you wouldn't be interested would you <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Preachers—they don't have—they don't have affairs, do they? No, 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 no. no. There's no gay preachers either. But uh, that's something along the lines of what happened to me, except that um, this woman accused me of rape too, and they were all lies, and I was just absolutely uh, floored, uh, devastated, and uh, even I had thoughts of suicide uh, at the time. Um, Everything I had hoped for, everything I had dreamed of, everything I wanted to be when I grew up was just dashed. And um, it was a quite terrific, you know, terrifying time for me, if you will. And um, I was able to think my way out of it. Yeah. Thankfully, you did. Interesting terminology, because I use that that myself, John, is that you literally have to think yourself out of all the uh, emotional arguments that are the the arguments for religion yeah it, you know, some people have the courage to do that on their own and i applaud them and others are never brought up to believe and uh, i wish that were the case with me but uh, i was heavily indoctrinated i i claim that the more educated a believer is the more indoctrinated they are more stubborn they become and the less likely they are to change their mind because they have a lot of things uh, you know of interest in, in in maintaining that 
that facade. And so it does take a, a crisis for, for some of us, I think, even if there are people who are quite courageous to be able to do it on, on their own without a crisis. Well, yeah. I've got two of them here. So <laughs> good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think, I think the more intelligent a person is, the better able they are to rationalize their. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's never seen so crystal in such a crystal clear way as when you read a review written by a Christian of something you've, you know, you've written. And I've seen that over the years with my books. I will see a Christian scholar review something in my book and, um, I will, I'll ask myself, well, did he even read my chapter? Did he even read the book? It's so bad. Uh, that's because they have a way of gerrymandering around the, the texts themselves and claiming that, that I said something that I didn't. And uh, I maintain that <clears throat> Christians should, should try that sometime. They should read a Christian book or they should read it. They should read a skeptical book and then turn around and read a rebuttal of that book by a Christian scholar. And they might ask themselves the same kinds of questions. You know, did this Christian scholar really digest the contents of this book? It'd be quite eye opening, I think. Yeah, so you went from going from being an apologist to to someone who became you were very motivated. Obviously, uh, when you left your faith, uh, you've written. I mean, you don't be not motivated, not write or, or and write uh, five books. <laughs> uh, I couldn't imagine that. So, what drives you in uh, in, in the pursuit of uh, of reason? Well, I have uh, I have a lot of different motivations. Um, one of them is that since I had learned about the Christian faith and um, so much studying put into it, I might as well share what I've learned. I don't, I don't think there'd be a, a reason why after amassing a lot of information that I would just all of a sudden walk away from all that I learned. I might as well share it. I've got, a, I've got that information and uh, so I have a, a duty to, to share it and that's one of my main motivations. Another one is to keep others from going the same route I did, where um, I had invested so much time and effort and money into my studies that uh, I didn't have anything to fall back on afterward. Uh, when, I, when I realized later on in life that it was all a sham, it was all a delusion. So to help people and just because I have the information, I might as well share it. Yeah, well, you you've put a, a lot of time invested into it and you might as well uh, take a look at that from a different perspective and share it with everybody. Yeah. Uh, another motivation, another motivation I just thought of is uh, I like uh, competitive sports. You know, I like to watch them. I can't really uh, play some of those uh, uh, like football. I can't do tag football anymore and I'm not too agile for basketball, but I like competitive Competitive sports, I like competitive games, games like chess, games like uh, billiards, and um, I want to win. And I, I find it interesting as a, a competitive person that I am, along with the other two motivations I just mentioned, I, I like to win. And I, I like to come up with new arguments. I like to uh, have an exchange with a Christian and, and out of that exchange, you know, learn something new and be able to state something that I hadn't said so clearly before. So uh, none of it is just, just simply competition. <laughs> well, well, yeah, but what did you learn from Randall Rouser? Um, <laughs> yeah, well, I thought. <laughs> right. It's uh, I learned how how people can defend whatever they want to want to defend. It's just amazing that that he thinks that. Um, he has reasons for why he believes, and I, you know, I guess it's just uh, you look. You're looking at a, into the eyes of a guy who um, has um, got you know headlights shined on his eyes. You know, like a blank stare. It's like, where is he? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I was watching uh, in the debate you did here in Calgary uh, with Randall Rouser, and you were getting pretty steamed. <laughs> Again, well, especially during the Q and A, I remember thinking the same thing he john was almost to the point okay i've had enough of this <laughs> i i do do it again i do get that way and uh you know um, it's the yeah it's maddening yeah you know it's it, you asked john the question um what uh you know about randall and 
the thing I learned from Randall, I mean, it was a new argument for me. And basically what I learned was that, that there's a way to bring woo-woo into the question of religion. <laughs> first, first time I had heard such a, uh, a uh, Deepak Chopra. Oh, are you talking uh, about the, the number seven thing? Well, no, it was just the overall argument that, oh. that you, at a, at a spiritual, at a super, at some, um, you know, naturalistic, uh, level, we just, it, those were all his arguments that we, we should know based on this, um, woo woo idea about the nature of the world and the universe that there's a God. And, and those arguments were just, bizarre to me it was like that's what you're basing your argument on that's that doesn't make any sense so yeah it's a matter of perspective uh, the, those of us who have embraced evidence and reasoning um will, will not tolerate for woo <laughs> you exactly. know we just, we, you know and it's uh trying to get the apologists to see that that's what they're doing they're they have a, a good feeling inside they were raised to believe and and that's good enough for them, and they'll do whatever they can to defend their faith. And there's really no defending that faith or any other kind of faith, really. So it's we just stand, stand back and we look at him, and we uh, we're just amazed at what we're seeing. We're seeing a, an absolutely brainwashed person who is also brilliant. And um, <clears throat> you know, I just find it. Uh, you might as well go to a circus and pay an extra fifty cents to go into a little tent, and you see a two-headed person or something, you know. <laughs> yeah, or, or, or get your fortune read. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's just uh, bizarre that um, so many people believe that crap. I mean, just, although, you know, I used to, so it's uh, quite um, interesting to me. I find it uh, entertaining, in fact. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. You have that perspective that you actually were there in within the box, and now you're looking at the box from the outside. And I find that interesting. I, I, I was one of those people that grew up, uh, you know, was never indoctrinated into any faith and so I just sort of stayed an atheist after I looked at it, and and, it's, and I took a serious look at a, a lot of uh, religious claims, and I'm like, uh, yeah, I'll just put that back on the shelf. <laughs> and yeah. yeah, but like John uh, intimated a minute ago, it, it I think it's easier if you start out with nothing to get there, to get to <laughs> the point you came to, right? It's it's um, it is uh, completely, and and I agree with John. I'm I'm much. I wish, um, I really wish that I had been raised that way myself because I'm glad uh, I was raised this way. I mean, uh, yeah. Uh, but does that leave you with a sense of of anger? Uh, I'm asking both of you guys. Well, I'd like to hear Nate's uh, response to that, but I, I'm not really. I'll say I'm not really angry at uh, anybody. I, I, there's nobody to be angry with. Um, yeah. I'm quite frustrated. Uh, you know. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I'm just saying, thinking that you don't have. It's like it's like uh, Thanksgiving. We don't have anybody to thank, but we're still thankful for being here, right? So, yeah. is, is there an over, maybe an overall sense of of man, I, I wasted all that time because of these beliefs uh, at all? Some people have it, some people don't. Yeah, I, I would I wouldn't say that I do, uh, Randy. I think it's more of a uh, of um, thankfulness. That I'm in this position now. Good point. Uh, so, um, so certainly a, on the a lot of madness um, as a result of all of that, and, and a lot of cognitive dissonance in the process of, of Trent, you know, moving away from one idea and, and, and to another. But um, that's not something that you spend a lot of time dwelling on. You know, it's it, it is now a, a body of information and, and knowledge that I have that that is relatively unique. <laughs> That's right. Oh, so I don't I don't unique. feel bad about that. Yeah, I, I count myself, you know, a privileged person having um, had faith earlier in a way, because uh, for the for the reasons Nate just mentioned, I mean, uh, I have a better perspective, I think, on helping others navigate through life without faith. And um, so I I feel privileged in a way for that. I'm also a little bit, uh, I also get a little angry. You had mentioned that. I, um, I, I, I get angry, not at people or anything, but I say slightly angry uh, is what I really mean. When it comes to people mistreating my arguments, <laughs> you know, it's like, 
you know, you, no, I'm sorry, that's not what I said. Or, you know, I, uh-huh. I've read reviews of my books and chapters, and I'm, like I said earlier, it's a, it's a wonder, did they even read my chapter? You know, it's like, what? <laughs> so I get a little perked. Yeah, I think what happens there is that people have a preconceived notion of what you are going to say and then juxtapose that with what you actually did say. And then the, the hybrid is some uh, weird mutant. Uh, I think that <laughs> right. often happens. That's right, that's right. Yeah, and and too often or rarely do you have the opportunity to have the the conversation necessary with an individual to hash through all that. So yeah, it can be, it can be very frustrating. You know, they I'm convinced, John, that the vast majority of critics no, they didn't they didn't even attempt to read or to understand. If they if they if they let uh, the words pass through their eyes and into their brain. Like, like Randy says, it is so distorted by their, you know, they're already working on their argument against it that um, they might as well not have read it. Yeah, there's two different brain processes going on, and and, uh, one of them is to seek to understand, uh, you know, what's being said. And the other one is, like you said, uh, how can I uh, refute this argument or how can I defend my faith from what's being said? And those two different brain processes come up with two different results yeah. when when reading the same text. So if they're not seeking to understand in the first place, they, they don't. <laughs> Plain and simple. Yeah. That's right. They're going to see what they want to see. Right. So let's talk about the, the upcoming book, John. Uh, now, the, the title would uh, kind of uh, remind me of the title again. Yeah, How to Defend the Christian Faith, Advice from an Atheist. And so... You're, you're, you haven't gone back to the dark side, right? <laughs> no, no. I, you, you said you take a fair bit of heat for the for this book, actually. That's true. The atheists will they might look at it and say things like, "Well, he uh, he doesn't uh, he's not really an atheist after all," and, and or why is he trying to help Christians? And my answer is, you know, I haven't changed my mind. What I'm doing is I'm showing. Christian apologists how to do it right, uh, and if and my point is that if they did it right, they wouldn't be apologists after all. <laughs> it's really it's kind of a convoluted thing. It's a, an attention-getting way of um, having them buy my book and, and read through these arguments because I, what I'm doing is I'm showing in a positive sense what to do, and in a negative sense what um, what has not actually worked so far. And I'm challenging them to either come up with better arguments come up with better ways to defend their faith or just quit the, the enterprise altogether. <laughs> uh, and, and and to Christians or uh let's see uh, yeah to Christians they they would say well I'm not really sincere in giving them honest advice but uh, I do. So yeah it's provocative and it's uh, you know it's received some criticism so far but uh, I'll wait till after people begin reading it before I actually you know take it, that criticism seriously. <laughs> what I really like about this is it's a completely different perspective. Uh and, you know there's there's apologists writing apologetics books there's there's atheist writing counter apologetics books. Now this is kind of a a cross. Uh, what's the term I'm looking for? You know, like it's it's kind of a, a mix of the two, and it, nobody's really done that yet. No, they haven't, and uh, I'm glad to I'm glad to be one of the first, if not the first. But I'll project that there will be some Christians who will take this and, and do the same. I mean, they're <laughs> copycats in a way. You know, how to um, how to be an atheist, advice from a Christian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I don't think they can do that because once they tell atheists how to uh, defend atheism, then... Uh, they, well, I, I would argue right. that, that there are a be lot atheists. of Christians that tell atheists how to, how to act, uh, to be silent and to suffer because so that we have no purpose in life. So I don't know. I think they've already done it, <laughs> right? Uh, especially uh, Catholics. But anyway, <laughs> uh, so the the forward is written by uh, our friend Peter Bogosian. Nice uh, guy. Yeah, yeah, I love him. Oh yeah, yeah. He's a pretty intense dude. <laughs> yeah, he is. Such a hard worker. He tirelessly uh, works on behalf of atheist causes. It's uh, it's amazing to behold. Yeah, and we're going to have him actually on again on the podcast sometime later in a few months uh, when he's not too busy. I, I want to talk to him about uh, uh, bringing uh, Islamic extremists down, talking them down. Yeah, yeah, he's talking uh, about that lately. Yes, he? yeah, he was at INR, uh, Imagine a Religion, 
which actually you should be up there sometime. Oh, sometime I, I will then. <laughs> that, it, it, oh, yeah, it, I, I'd, I'd like to see you as a speaker there. Oh, um, mention it to somebody then, I guess. I, I will. Um, okay. Bill Liggert would. Uh, and I've, I've been looking at the uh, table of contents. Now, Jerry Coyne put the table of contents. Uh, he read the book already, I assume. Oh, I don't know how much of it he's read. No, yeah. I, 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 he yeah. definitely endorses the book. Uh, yeah, right. He does. And I, I just looking at the table of contents, and uh, it, you know, uh, it's it's interesting. Uh, the, in part one, uh, you call it you must prepare for the task. So, in other words, how how should a Christian prepare themselves for uh, to try and argue their faith? Well, in that section, that part of the book, there's five chapters, and uh, each one of them helps them think through what it would require to be a Christian apologist. Uh, the, the first chapter in that part is simply, you know, try to realize the monumental challenge of being an apologist, the, the kinds of questions that might arise that an apologist would have to answer. It's like a boot camp ch- type of a chapter where I simply just throw a bunch of, of the arguments that um, um and evidence that science has produced, especially recently with regard to things like free will and, and Adam and Eve and, and creationism itself as, as one part of that chapter. And, um, you know, I just simply say, you know, you, you're going to have to find a way to answer this because it's, uh, you know, I, I don't see an answer to the evidence, you see. And, um, so I'll, I'll do that in that, uh, chapter, chapter two. It's like, uh, any, any venture you want to, get into you need to know in, in advance what you're getting into you know it doesn't matter what the venture is and so i said well here in this chapter i'm going to tell you what you're going to get into now you won't have to answer all these arguments but you're going to have to answer some of those so here 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 they are <laughs> so I, that's kind of a snarky way to give them advice isn't it but it's true. <laughs> i freaking love it john i think that's well, brilliant i'm looking at the titles of, of all these chapters and i'm thinking isn't this just a pathway to atheism <laughs> that's exactly yeah. what it is yeah you know i'm, I'm curious as to, to the reviews as uh, as the book comes out because um yeah i mean i'm arguing for atheism and i'm telling them but if you want to argue against us then you're going to have to adopt you know evidence you're going to have to adopt um you know good sound reasoning and things like that and uh it's really quite interesting book but i actually do sincerely give christians honest advice uh like in uh, chapter three that's still in part one uh it's titled become an honest lifelong seeker of the truth and that's that's honest advice you know Uh, too too often People who want to be apologists, they'll go to a, well, if they're really serious about it, they'll try to find an apologetics program somewhere to graduate from, you know, in, whether it's undergraduate or in the, the seminary level. So they'll go and they'll look at um, who's the best po- apologist uh, and they'll study under them in order so that they can become apologists. And um, it's like uh, getting married at your at the age of 21 and they expected to, you know, for that marriage to last, you know, the whole lifetime. Usually it does. It is the good goal. I, I embrace that. But a lot of times it doesn't work out that way because you're just too young at the age of 21 to make that kind of life commitment when uh, there's so many other influences in the, so many years ahead of you. And maybe if, and if that's a bad analogy, the, the point is that when they go to these apologetics programs, they're choosing one based on what they know at the age of whenever they go in there, let's say 18. And if they go into this apologetic program at the age of 18 or 19 and they study with an apologist to defend the faith, they, they don't know what they'll believe in 20 years from now or in 30 years. What will you believe? See, and so sometimes, you know, you'll come out of those programs and be a gung ho and then, uh, continue reading and continue studying and then you'll actually, well, that wasn't a good argument or that wasn't a good, you know, way to go about things. So I say, well, rather than study it with an apologetics program, why don't you just study to be, uh, for the truth? <laughs> Those are two different brain processes. I'd mentioned that earlier. Be an honest seeker of truth no matter what the cost. Don't, don't ever study in an apologetics program because that's presupposing answers that you haven't yet, uh, studied in depth for. Yeah. yeah, but too many of them do. So, so once they've uh, figured that part out, you know, they've gone through the preparation stage, and then they, you say how to defend the Christian faith. And I love the first chapter in there. You must specialize in special pleading. 
Yep. All apologetics. <laughs> That's right. I like I like those titles. They came up pretty good. Uh, they look good to me too. But all <laughs> apologetics. Yeah. Well, that's why you wrote it. <laughs> all, apologetics, <laughs> uh, all apologetics is special pleading. That's where you um, plead a special case on behalf of something unfairly. Like you have a double standard. One standard for everybody else and one standard for, say, your your kids. You know, my kids are the best in the world. Well, you've got a special pleading case. And I understand saying that, you know, of course. But uh, when it comes to arguments, they'll say, well, things like, well, okay, in the ancient world, all miracles were myths and uh, unsubstantiated and uh, false because they were, you know, not well documented and uh, they occurred in a superstitious age. But belief in the resurrection of Jesus is different. <laughs> yep. Yep. And I, I go into those sorts of uh, things that they uh, special plead their case, but it's uh, all the way down. It's a special pleading all the way down. The whole enterprise is nothing but special pleading. They'll, they'll argue to their uh, to their God, for instance, and uh, you know, with, with one of the arguments uh, that uh, are traditionally known to you know have worked by Christians down through the millennia, and um, and yet those arguments don't actually lead to the the God who is a three in one, the God who sent Jesus to, you know to atone for sins, the God who raised Jesus from dead, because Jews and uh, and Orthodox Jews and Muslims will use the same arguments to prove that say a God exists, a Creator God exists, and I fault them for that because those arguments don't work. But even if they do work to say, though, these arguments lead to the God of Jesus doesn't follow at all. It, it's, they've got a whole lot of um, work to do yet to show that Jesus rose from the dead, you see. And so they use those arguments in a special pleading type of way. It's special pleading all the way down. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's actually a point that I, I try to impress on people regularly is that you can... Well, you actually go one step further back. Most folks spend their time arguing against science on the assumption that if I can defeat this, yeah. therefore God. Yeah. Therefore God. Therefore God, but therefore Yahweh. Not only therefore That's Yahweh, right. but therefore the Yahweh of mainstream Christianity. You right. know, it's just, it's irrational. It, it, it is. Faith is, that's because faith is irrational. I argue that. Yeah. Well, they often try to raise faith up to some kind of a, a valid epistemology, which, of course, it, it definitely is not. No, no. Peter Varkosian is is great on this. I mean, he's trying to raise up an army of um, uh, street epistemologists who will, tr- will try to argue people out of their 100% confidence, uh, and uh, it's it's working. I've seen some videos of people doing that, and it's great to see them on the, on the streets. They're pretending to know what they can't know, when they pretend with 100, 100% certainty that their faith is true. That, it's obvious. It's, it's nothing but yeah, theory. It's, it's from our perspective, yeah, it's absolutely obvious. Uh, and, just, and then the, the goal is to try to help them see that. And these street apologists, uh, street epistemologists, as he calls them, they'll, they'll videotape some of what they call interventions where they simply ask a bunch of Socratic uh, questions in order to get the, the person that they're uh, interviewing to say, well, you know what, I don't know this with 100% certainty. And that's that's some a massive amount of uh, um, good things coming out of that. Yeah. So in part three, you have how to defend God in a world of pain. So you're basically looking at the problem of evil, are you not? Oh, yes. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, and um, yeah, I take several of the arguments, several of the solutions being um, proposed by Christians, and um, you know, I just show that um, you know they're not really dealing head-on with with the problem. They, they don't even understand it in some cases. Uh, they're just, and these are some top-notch uh, philosophers too, and theologians uh, making these arguments. And you know, they just you know fall flat. There's just really nothing there when it comes to the problem of suffering, the pro- problem of uh, intense suffering, the of horrific evils that take place. You know, every hour of every day around the, the globe. You know, there's just no good God uh, who's omnipotent and all-knowing. It just isn't possible. Uh, for that to, to that being to exist, you know, that doesn't mean that some god of some kind might not exist anyway, an evil potentate perhaps. But then, if if that's what we've got, then there's no reason to worship him either. Yes. Well, you know, I, I was watching the news a couple of weeks ago. It was uh, a, it was a flash flood. I, was it in Colorado? I something something. Right, I think so. Yeah. And in a community, a religious community, and one person, you know, several a number of people died as their vehicles were swept away. 
and one person was saying this is uh, the Almighty Creator's way of bringing the community closer together, and I'm just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so you God know, couldn't have done it any other way, could he? And and there's a title, a, a chapter title here: "Blame Anything But the Creator," and that's exactly what they're doing. Exactly. You know, I mean, you can. If you don't know the answer to why someone suffered or why a, a whole group of people suffered or a nation, then just say, "Well, God knows what's best," you know. And um, and who are you to who are you to um, do to blame the Creator? He, after all, by definition, He's all loving and all uh, powerful, so you can't blame Him. And so they just skirt the evidence and um, you know basically assert without much uh, of a way of an argument, except quoting the Bible. That their uh, their God is good regardless of what we see. Yeah. Well, we we just saw that tragedy in uh, in uh, oh in uh, Mecca, Mina, and oh, you know seven hundred and some people dead. Oh, that was Mecca, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's terrible. And, yeah. And the health minister of Saudi Arabia is gone on the radio or on you know on the media to say that um, first of all that it's the fault of the victims. Because they didn't listen to instructions, and second of all, that it's God's will. And the 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 point you raise here is a valid point for any Christian to consider. How is that argument any different from the arguments that that you guys make that it's um, it's okay that this tragedy happened uh, in America or, or yeah. in, in the Western world because um, it's, it's God's will. Yeah, it's special pleading. I mean, you know, I mentioned that. It's, um, uh, Muslim believers will special plead the, their case before Allah, and they make the same types of arguments on behalf of their God as Christians do, you know, in the, in the, in the United States and elsewhere. Uh, it's just same arguments, different deity. So what makes it so sure then that uh, their deity is the one, uh, you know, that's the one true one? And um, it comes down to historical evidence. And... You know, like whether or not there's evidence to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you know, for the Christian. And uh, Muslims <clears throat> don't even think he died on the cross. And the Orthodox Jews deny that uh, he rose from the dead. And they still believe in God. I mean, they they believe in God. And yep. yet they don't think the evidence leads to the resurrection of Jesus. So that's really odd. <laughs> you think the evidence <laughs> would be able to convince them, right? Yeah. Yeah. They don't even believe he's the Messiah. Right. Well, they yeah. certainly don't believe he's the son of God. That That's blasphemy in, in Islam. But they do say he's a prophet. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. But when it comes to the evidence itself, you know, the evidence doesn't convince them. I mean, why? Why? Why not? You know, if it's uh, if they say, well, an argument to the existence of God should lead to Jesus's uh, resurrection from the dead, right? Well, apparently the Muslims don't accept that, and neither do Orthodox Jews. Well, why? Because they were born in a different country at a different time, and they were taught differently from their youth up. That's why. Yeah. So it's it's irrelevant to facts or, or or reality or truth. Yeah, it really is. Uh, when you read Peter Barhosian's um, uh, intro or no forward, uh, you'll see he says that um, once you uh, adopt faith, then uh, arguments are a sham, a facade. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's it's an excuse for not having the evidence. I mean, if you have the evidence, you don't need faith. Yeah. Well, and right. and I've I've made that point before that that uh, Christians or religious people in in general are being hypocritical if they even engage atheists because their their salvation is by great faith or grace through faith. Uh-huh. Uh, and faith defies um justification. And then you have that those passages in Timothy that say that um they they need to be prepared with an answer. Well, that doesn't make any sense either. Why would you need to give an answer for why you believe something that's that you can't answer? Well, <laughs> well by Good hook boy, or by yeah. crook, okay? By hook or by crook, as long as you're saved, all things are permissible. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Who who said that? Martin Luther? Me. Well, Martin Luther, yeah, he probably said something similar. But uh, who was it who said it was okay to lie for somebody? Was it? I think Martin Luther said it. Uh, you may have, yeah. I know a number of people. I think people. Augustine said it, too. Yeah, I think earlier than that. I think maybe it was maybe Eusebius. I'm not sure. But... Yeah, my, uh, that's kind of my paraphrasing of it, and 
and it's of course is not advice for Christians. Uh, well, Christians have been lying, you know, ever since even before they were Christians. Uh, the Jews, you know, even before them, whom they received their Old Testament scriptures. There's a lot of forgeries in the text, a lot of forgeries down through history, a lot of fake relics. Um, and even today, you know, a lot of fakes who will say, well, we've been to heaven or we've been to hell, and they make a, a mint off of a book or in, and lectures, and it couldn't possibly be the case that either of them went to heaven or hell. Yeah, you know, you make a good point, John. Why don't, what, what are we doing here? Why, why do we make our lives so difficult? Just write a freaking book for Christians. <laughs> you'll live, you'll live the good life. <laughs> oh yeah, right, yeah, yeah. I know, I know. People, have, people have told me that before. I just uh, couldn't. I, I know why. Somebody would stand up and say to me, uh, uh, "Okay, now you're, now you're a Christian. You used to be an atheist. Would you please tell me how to answer the outsider test for faith?" And then they would stump me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I could, so, so you've you've already ruined it for yourself, John. I have. <laughs> yeah, they, they would say they would say answer these arguments of your your previous self, and uh, I would uh, be stammering and stuttering and drooling afterward. <laughs> I guess I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, what is the answer to it? I mean, I, there can be no response to it that is honest. That's that's the thing. You're just right. too honest, John. Stop being honest. <laughs> yeah. Well. I think I'm uh, more honest uh, with the evidence than uh, believers are, and that's all I need to claim. And because I, uh, because I know that the brain has a tendency to uh, skirt evidence. The brain has a tendency to not accept evidence when it goes against our prejudices. Absolutely. You know, and, and how I do know that, so I'm not exempt from that. But I, all I do claim is that because I know that our brains deceive us. And therefore, because I know that, then I'm more apt and more willing to listen to uh, what science tells us and look for objective evidence before I come to conclusions. And when I do come to a conclusions, any conclusions, then I should think exclusively in terms of the probability. Uh, like, uh, I'm 65% sure of this, or I'm 75% sure of that, or I'm only 10% sure of that. I know it doesn't sound too good in a conversation to be able to say, wait, 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 that's 25% probably, <laughs> you know. But uh, we should think exclusively in terms of the probabilities. Yeah. Yeah, it would just be so much easier, John, if you just believed. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, what I tell people, well, if God exists, why doesn't he just snap his omnipotent fingers and uh, take away all my critical uh, thinking capacity. Free will, John. It's all free will. <laughs> but I want to know the truth. So, hey, even though I want to, so since I want to know the truth, I think it would be within God's rights to go ahead and do that for me. Absolutely. <laughs> so that that the book comes out uh, November first. It will be on Amazon, uh, hopefully in uh, bookstores across the continent. Uh, I'm pretty excited. And, about and a Kindle edition is is following. I uh, I'm pretty sure about that. Yeah. Good. 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 Uh, uh, a couple of years ago, my my wife got me a Christmas present. It was a Kindle because she was sick and tired of me bringing home books. Oh, I wish I'd done that a couple of years back. <laughs> I a load of books. You can't get book uh, Kindles signed though. That's the problem. Oh, that's true. That's unfortunate. Well, thanks, John. Uh, well, thank you. We'll have you on again. Uh, I'm sure. And okay. It was it was fun. So it was John, fun. it was good. It was good to talk to you again. You too, Nate. Cindy, Cindy said hi. Oh, tell her I said uh, hi as well. I like watching seeing you both, you and her on. Um, Facebook commenting and posting links to things. It's pretty. You guys are pretty good as a team. That's great. Yeah, yeah thanks, sir. You take care, sir. All right, you too. You've been listening to the Legion of Reason, coming to you from Calgary, Canada. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please consider reviewing us on iTunes. Music was provided by Dean Morrison and Graham Hill and used with permission.